Welcome back to Why So Serious Podcast. Uh, I'm your host for this very special episode, Mike. Um, we're diving back into the Avengers of Justice original Why So Serious What If story. Uh, gotta apologize. The last episode, episode two, was released in December. And it is now, at the time of this recording, almost the middle of March. Uh... Didn't intend to take this long to put the third one out. Lots going on. Half of it was a new job and all this crazy stuff. And the other half was I actually had episode three written and recorded. I didn't feel great about it. Um, And when I sent it to Brandon for final posting, it was corrupted. And I had to re-record certain segments of it, and that, that to me was a sign. And so I, I rewrote the whole thing, and I'm much happier with this episode, episode three. Um, wanted to put out, I didn't want to put out something that I just wasn't thrilled with. So I rewrote episode three, it took some time, some things going on in life, but we're back. Um, and before we get into the story, let's just go over some of the things that happened in the last two episodes since it's been so long. We ended episode one with Emperor Palpatine entering the Lazarus Pit and coming out uh, with some strange new powers. And episode two introduced some of your favorite characters from Marvel and DC in a rewritten version of Fury's Big Week. So this episode, episode three, kind of begins to tie things together a little bit. I didn't want to rush. Um, So with that being said, let's get back into the story. Uh, For this episode, we open on Nanda Parbat. Uh, The newly revitalized Emperor Palpatine has concluded a massive demonstration of power. Kylo Ren approached and knelt before his master. Palpatine had a sort of chaotic smile on his face. You have done well, my new apprentice he said to Ren. He walked past Ren, who was still kneeling, and he looked up into the sky. I have seen clarity. He turned once more to Kylo Ren and said with a smile, I have the power to finally destroy the rebellion and the Jedi. He began laughing. Ren stood now and asked, What must we do? And Palpatine responded, The Force has always been about balance. Always light and dark. But never has one overtaken the other. Such is the way it has been. But not anymore. I have seen the way to power. No, no, not ever before seen by any student of the Force. You see, we could do many things with the Force. We could heal our bodies. We could influence, influence our, our men. Uh, we could inflict pain on the body and the mind. We could even postpone death. But never before has anyone managed to reverse it. Kylo Ren looked shocked and said, I'm sorry, Master, I, I don't, I'm not sure what you mean. Palpatine looked at him with a sinister look and said, You will. Let me give you another demonstration of my new powers. Palpatine's eyes began glowing green, and with a grunt he held out both of his hands in front of him and suddenly a massive bolt of green lightning came from above. When it struck, smoke filled the air. Green flashes and lights could be seen, but nothing was clear. A haze filled the whole courtyard. Palpatine could be heard laughing maniacally, his cackle echoing off the temple walls. Eventually, the dust settled. Ren could make out the silhouette of Palpatine, the green glow from his eyes illuminating his twisted face, which had a euphoric expression on it. 
Ren looked beyond Palpatine and could see the silhouette of another, someone who wasn't there before. This perplexed Ren. He stepped but once forward, and then his heart sank as he heard the sound he had only read about in legend. The deep, harrowing sound of mechanical breathing. And as the smoke cleared and the figure became clear, Ren fell to his knees and bowed. Grandfather! Kylo Ren, I would like you to meet an old apprentice of mine, Darth Vader. Vader dropped to his knees. He was in some kind of pain. What have you done? Ren asked. My new powers give me new abilities. They answer to finally tipping the balance to the dark side of the Force. I will use these gifts to return to my... Return to my side, the heroes of the Sith, long dead. You're going to bring back old Sith lords? Yes. What about the rule of two? Ren asked, and Palpatine responded. The rule of two was designed to ensure that every succeeding lord of the Sith be more powerful than the last, requiring each apprentice to kill the master and take his place. But none can attain the power I have acquired here today, and such the need for the rule of two is no more. Ren was now looking at Vader, who was kneeling motionless and silent, except for the breathing. What's wrong with him? This is indeed the body of my old apprentice, but it is missing something. Before he was Darth Vader, he was Anakin Skywalker, and Anakin Skywalker was reincarnated as a Force ghost when Vader was killed. Our reincarnation is missing a soul, young Master Sith. Palpatine thought for a moment and then smiled. We have been given a rare opportunity. A blank slate. Palpatine approached the still-kneeling Vader. What are you doing? asked Ren. Palpatine, Palpatine held up his hands. I'm going to give Vader a soul based on my memories of him. What will that look like? asked Ren. And Palpatine, still smiling, said only one word. Pain. And with that, he grabbed Vader's helmet and began shocking Vader. At this, Vader reacted, screaming out in pain in one massive rush. Vader was being returned some of the memories of Anakin Skywalker, but only memories of pain, memories that Palpatine himself would have known about. He, he remembered things like being separated from his mom at a young age, only to track her down later and find her murdered by the Tusken Raiders. He remembered being abandoned by his former Padawan Ahsoka Tano, he remembered how his old master, Obi-Wan Kenobi, betrayed him by turning his wife, Padme, against him, and he even remembered her death. He remembered all of his pain and none of his joy. All the things that made Darth Vader Vader, and none of the things that made Anakin Skywalker good. When Palpatine finished, he spoke. This is what Darth Vader was always meant to be. This is Vader with no light, a perfect instrument of darkness. Darth Vader looked upon the environment and back at the Emperor. Master, how is this possible? I said it once, and I will say it again, my old friend. The dark side is home to many abilities some consider to be unnatural. It is true, then. You can bring back the dead, asked Vader. Palpatine responded, Yes, Lord Vader. I have more power now than ever before, thanks to the pit.
Palpatine gestured over to the pit, almost forgetting that Ra's al Ghul and the rest of the League of Shadows were still watching all these events unfold. Raish noticed that Palpatine has once again turned his attention to the League, and spoke to Palpatine. You have what you came for. Please, leave this place. We are no threat to you. Palpatine smiled. That you are not. I think Master Ren would benefit from seeing his grandfather in action. Palpatine started laughing again and said, Lord Vader, kill. And at that, Palpatine gestured towards Raish and his assassins. Without hesitation, Vader held one hand up at the dire in the direction of Kylo Ren, using the force to pull Ren's lightsaber from his belt and into Vader's hand. Raish had gestured his men to attack, and the sky filled black with arrows as they began to fall. Vader held up one hand, stopping every arrow in midair and crushing them above him. He sent the dust back at the archers, temporarily blinding everyone. Vader then went on a tear. He cut down many members of the League of Shadows. It was a massacre, and Raish ordered a full retreat. Raish was running with what little soldiers he had left, and he commanded they go on without him, for he would make his final stand. He drew his sword as his men continued to flee. He stopped and faced Vader, who wasn't even running. Vader effortlessly cut Raish's sword in two and began force-choking him, intending to kill him. But Palpatine spoke, Do not kill him, my old friend. He is a keeper of the pit and its secrets. Vader dropped him. Bring the keeper of the pit with us. We can't have him tampering with my new toy, and we must begin construction of a Sith temple, a base of operations. Kylo Ren spoke up. Master, are we not to return to Exegol and finish what we started against the Scavenger and her band of rebels? In time, my apprentice. First, we must learn more about this system. I can feel its secrets calling to me. Palpatine paused. We must go. I sense we will soon have company. And then a voice boomed from the sky. That you will. A large portal opened behind them, followed by a loud boom. And the Sith and Palpatine's guards were all gone, along with Raish. Elsewhere in the world, at an airport in Athens, Diana Prince had just stepped off her flight. Moving through the airport and exiting, she took a car to the seaport, got out and walked to the edge. She walked up to the gates and, and, and the attendant spoke, in Greek. This port is not open to the public at this time, ma'am. Diana responded, I'd like to see the ferryman. Without hesitation, the gate man spoke back, Go on through. She walked to the very end of the port, stood at the edge overlooking the water, when a hooded man appeared next to her. He was dressed in black and his face was twisted and distorted. Miss Prince, he hissed. It's been a long time. She spoke back. No games today, Charon. Take me to paradise. He looked confused. Hmm, I don't typically ferry to any location other than the underworld. You know how they feel about men on that island of yours. Just take me close enough to see the shore. You'll be rewarded. She held out her hand and in it were several gold drachma. The currency of the realm. Of Amazons, that is. Fine, get in. Charon agreed to take her, and she stepped into the gondola. The gondola vanished, and it, the pair reappeared several moments later, but not at the port. They were surrounded entirely by water, and in the distance, an island appeared almost out of nowhere, just barely visible. Diana said, thank you, Charon. She stood up and jumped in the water, and uh, Charon vanished. She swam until she made it to the beach. 
Massive cliffs lined the back of the beach, uh, and atop it was a little village. Could just be seen peering over the treetops. As quaint, just as quaint as she remembered. She began walking when the when horns sounded in the distance. Then the beach was rushed from both sides and above by women. They surrounded Diana. The woman in charge stepped up. Well, well, and here I thought we had an intruder. Just the banished princess. Diana spoke back at the guard. I need to talk to my mother. The guard responded back. You have a lot of nerve coming here. You stole sacred Amazonian armor. You abandoned your people, our people, to live among them, among the men. You went off to f go fight their battles, and you know our laws, and you dare return? Diana spoke back. It has been nearly 90 years, and we may have bigger problems than our laws. Please, it is important I see Queen Hippolyta. The guard was angry. I should kill you where you stand. At this comment, the other warriors looked uneasy, as if they didn't want to proceed. Then another voice spoke from behind. What seems to be the problem here? The woman made eye contact with Diana and then stepped down from her horse. Diana. Diana looked at the woman and spoke back. Hello, mother. Queen Hippolyta started to speak. You know the law, but Diana cut her off. Mother, please, hear me out. We can speak of laws later. The queen looked at Diana with unease. And she, she said, in the great hall. My council will join us and hear you as well. They left for the great hall. In the hall, Diana's mother sat at the throne with members of her most trusted council beside her. What news do you bring from the world of man, Diana? Diana spoke. Well, I was approached yesterday by two government agents. They wanted to know if I had ever seen this. And she held up a picture of Thor's hammer when it was crashed at the site in New Mexico. The queen and her advisors were struck with shock and confusion. This weapon has Amazonian engravings on it. Stranger, on, from what I saw on the American news, it appeared to have been being well wielded by a man. Certainly not someone of Themyscira. The queen took the sin and said, How do you know of this? Diana responded, The last few days in the world of man have been some of the strangest anyone has ever seen, and in the mess of it all was a, a man people have been calling Thor. Apparently a great battle took place between this Thor and a great beast in the North American deserts. A man wielding what looks like an Amazonian weapon. Queen Hippolyta responded, It's not Amazonian, Diana. It is Precursor. Diana was confused. What? You know of this weapon? I've never seen it in person, but its origins date back to the hidden history of our people. What history? Diana spoke. I suppose there's no harm telling you this information as you are banished. I will share with you the redacted story of our people, Diana. The story of the great separation and cataclysm. You see, Diana, a long time ago, before Earth's contemporary history... Before humans were the sole and dominant race on this planet, there was once another civilization. The first civilization. The first civilization had claimed Earth long before humans ever got here. They were a powerful race, standing at an average of eight feet tall, genius intellects and immense strength. But with these strengths came one weakness. They lacked in numbers. There were only a few thousand members of the first civilization, but nevertheless they advanced quickly and were brilliant scientists and inventors. 
and were, they were eager to spread globally. Discovery after discovery was made on a daily basis by the precursor race, but being so few in number, they needed a way to expedite their plans for mass construction of their various projects. Thus, the first civilization created Homo sapien, the perfect workforce. They were sure to make humans genetically inferior to themselves, recognizing that they would be outnumbered by their mass amounts of new workers. They made the humans smaller in size, much less intelligent, and much weaker, only allowing them to have just enough strength to construct the first civilization's various projects. One thing they did incorporate, however, was a genetic resistance to Earth's various harsh environments. This natural resilience would allow them to build even in the most extreme areas of the world. Soon, they had millions of workers. Now it is written in various pre-Earth texts that the first civilization also created various technologies to keep the humans in line and obeying, but they are just referenced. Any documentation of how they actually did control the humans has been either lost or yet undiscovered. <clears throat> One day, a first civilization scientist discovered something while studying the sun, trying to unravel its mysteries. The discovery was that soon a massive solar flare, far more powerful than anything witnessed by the precursor race at the point of their existence, would soon erupt in only a matter of in, in only a year's time, burning Earth and destroying everything the first civilization had accomplished, and wiping out all life. The leaders of the precursor race convened, and it was decided that all efforts were now to be focused on designing a way to survive the coming cataclysm. Various precursor tribes made efforts to design solutions, but in the weeks following, almost every precursor had aligned with and supported one of three potential solutions. One group had suggested the best course of action was to build an underwater city, believing the ocean once deep enough, would protect them. Another group of precursors believed that they, if they could shield the Earth from the disaster using an array of plasma-based facilities, creating a barrier able to withstand the sun. The last tribe believed the precursors clearly were not meant to be on Earth for long and wanted to venture to other worlds. This event is looked back and referred to as the Great Separation. Between these three ideas, the first civilization could not agree on any one, and the precursors all merged into one of the three groups, and now becoming tribes. There was the Sea Tribe, the Science Tribe, and the Space Tribe. The human labor force were, was also split in three. Each tribe took their humans and began working, uh, began construction on their own respective ideas. Months had passed, and not a single member of the first civilization realized that they were only formally once so great because they were unified. As the date of the cataclysm grew, drew nearer, not a single one of the tribes had a solution capable of saving the entire planet. The Sky Tribe had a functioning prototype capable of launch and orbit, but it was not large enough to hold more than a couple hundred people. The Sea Tribe had constructed a floating city that could sink and sustain life, but they were unable to find a viable way to resurface the city again. The Science Tribe could never make a shield large enough to protect the whole planet, so in a last-ditch effort, they refocused efforts and, took, and decided to build smaller shields and began using them to construct and protect various bunkers, hoping it would be enough to save as many precursors as possible. It was now one month before the Great Cataclysm, and resources were almost all used up. 
The tribes were no longer to keep the humans un- were not were no longer able to keep the humans under their control. And the humans, now having free will for the first time and realizing that their entire existence was dedicated to working for a race, only for that race to make no effort to save them and so willing to let the humans die as if they were nothing and only saving themselves. This angered the humans, and they decided that if there was no room for both races to survive, then no one was going to survive, and a war erupted. The precursors may have been bigger and stronger than the humans, but the humans outnumbered them almost a hundred to one. The sea tribe was taken captive by their humans and placed in the center of their floating bunker. They then allowed the bunker to sink as intended, knowing that in only a few months the precursors would run out of air and suffocate. The humans who worked for the science tribe began taking over the bunkers, fitting as many humans as possible and killing any precursor found remaining inside. Eventually, the precursor surrendered, begging that the humans allow them at least one bunker. The humans agreed, but only for women, deciding that some of them would be able to survive but never again reproduce and their race would die out permanently. Members of the Sky Tribe had been living on their prototype, so as soon as the fighting began, they secured their machine and left with as many precursors as possible as cowards. When it was all said and done and the dust settled after the flare hit, only a few dozen precursors from each tribe survived. They emerged from the science tribe emerged from their bunkers to see hundreds of humans beginning to claim the land. The last women of the science tribe decided they were disgusted with the other two precursor tribes, and they became fearful of humankind, so they left. They built a boat and set sail for an island as far away from mankind as possible. The science tribe became the first of the Amazonians. The sea tribe was stuck in their underwater prison for weeks, but had enough technology left to recreate a smaller version of the device they used to create man, a genetic rewriter. They altered their own genetics to be able to survive underwater, allowing them to leave the bunker and survive the journey to the surface. But by the time they reached the top and saw that humans were still great in number and settling, they returned to their bunker and built an entire city from it. They called that city Atlantis. As for the Sky Tribe, they felt guilty about leaving the rest of their kind behind. They believed that the rest of their race They believed to be the only survivors of the Precursor race, vowing never to show such weakness ever again. They became fierce warriors. They built a city among the stars, and over several thousand years became powerful enough to oversee eight other worlds. Aside from their own. They became what we would all have become if we never separated. They're the last true Precursors left, and they are the Asgardians. Diana spoke for the first time in the story. Why have we not made contact with them, and how have they not discovered us all this time? Hippolyta answered, At the time, my mother Antiope was the highest-ranking member of the Sky Tribe to survive and became leader of the tribe after they left for Paradise Island. Bor, Odin's father, was in charge of the Sky Tribe, and a woman named Rhea was in charge of the Sea Tribe. All three leaders believed that the other two tribes had died. Antiope went to great lengths to build up Themyscira, building new technologies capable of shielding this place from even Odin's all-seeing eye. It wasn't until later, what is now contemporary human history, that we discovered the other two tribes did in fact survive. As the humans developed over thousands of years, most of us remaining precursors lived in secret. 
It was my law that no Amazon leave this island, but it was not my mother's. Antiope had sent spies out into the world of man. The spies would report on what man was doing and how they were progressing. Our goal was to, de to determine how big of a threat they were. It was the spies who made the discovery that there were still other precursors aside from the Amazons, and it was thanks to ancient religions. The Amazonian spies discovered that for whatever reason, precursors from the other tribes had not only survived, but in rare moments would display power to the humans. So much time had passed since the human war with the precursors that they, the humans now occupying the earth had no idea of the first civilization. When precursors would display powers to them, they were not able to comprehend that, and so they worshipped it as gods. If you take a closer look at human history books, you'll find various precursors. Antiope also had the spies seize intelligence. They brought back human books for us to read and learn from. There are countless references to individuals the humans refer to as gods, but any real precursor descendant would recognize as well, would recognize them as equals. This is how we know of Thor. He's referenced in human Nordic mythology, and he is not only one, and he's not the only one. Zeus, Osiris, Shiva, Poseidon, or Neptune, whatever you want to call him. Different Earth tribes gave them different names. All over the world in various human texts you can find the descendants of the first civilization. In some cases, you even have precursors who would have children with humans. This is how the human references to demigods were born. Half god, or precursor, and half man. This is also how we learned of the hammer. At some point during the generations of Earth's history, where the humans worshipped certain precursors as gods, Odin created a great weapon for his firstborn son. A hammer that only he can wield. But that's all that can be said for certain. We don't know why the hammer was created, only who created it and who it was for. We also don't know why the remaining precursors stopped appearing to the humans, or if they were members of either of the other two tribes. Some people believe that they were not of any tribe and just rogue precursors that survived the blast. Soon after all these events, Antiope had me, and when I was ready, I took over the crown of Amazon. It took only one report from her from her old established spies for me to decide that Earth was not only non-threatening to us, but we had no need to go there anymore, and I enacted the law, preventing Amazonians from leaving our home. Your discovery of Thor's return to Earth is the first precursor intelligence we have gotten since I enacted that law. I suppose there's a chance that there has been precursor activity in the time since that law's creation, but even that can't be true, because if it was, I imagine you would have returned sooner, Diana. So, you're telling me Thor is a precursor. Does this mean that we would be distantly related to him, Diana asked. No. The genetic structure in you is vastly different from the structure that makes up Thor's. Or the Atlanteans, for that matter. Just as the Atlanteans modified themselves to breathe underwater, and the Asgardians made it so they could survive among the stars, we made it so that we can live on without men. Each tribe is now genetically different. So different that you would not recognize two beings from different tribes as precursor. Even still, we don't know what the other tribes think about us. The current rulers of the Atlanteans and the Asgardians may not even be aware that we, uh, that they or we exist. Odin was king as of the last report. It stands to reason he's still king now. As for the Atlanteans, no one has seen them in a long time. We believe they're out there somewhere, living in the ocean. But aside from a few appearances in early history from Poseidon and a few other related people, we don't know much. I can't imagine they would know anything about us, and I don't think the Asgardians would either. Certainly not Thor. Do you know where Atlantis was built? Diana asked. 
No one does. It began construction so long ago in a time where everyone thought that all life was about to come to an end. We haven't the slightest indicator of where Atlantis is now. Why hide this from the rest of our people? It is ancient history, Diana. We have nothing to learn from the mistakes of our distant ancestors. Only pain. It was important to me when I became queen to keep us as far from that history as possible. I did not want us to be part of their precursor tribe. I wanted us to be Amazons, and only Amazons. The rest of the people didn't need not know this, just my council and I. What about the stories you told all the Amazon children? The stories you told me about how Zeus shaped us from clay? I've never met Zeus, nor have I, nor even heard from him. I don't even know if he's alive anymore. Zeus and his siblings were all during Antiope's time. He was part of the Sky Tribe originally, and no one has seen him in generations. Antiope used similar precursor technology that the Sea Tribe used. She rewrote every surviving Amazonian's anatomy to be able to give life, without the need of man. It has been part of our genetics ever since, and it's been part of our way of life. These machines were destroyed a long time ago. This is amazing. We need to make contact with the other descendants of the precursor race. No, we do not, Diana. This frustrated Diana. Mother, we, ha we don't have a choice. The reason most precursors were wiped out in the past is because they couldn't work together. Thor came back for a reason, and it could be important. He has lived among the stars for hundreds of years by now. Think of the knowledge we could gain. And the Atlanteans, under the sea this whole time, we must seek them out. It is our responsibility as descendants. We are not descendants anymore. We are Amazon. We have no reason to require their support. Why should we even bother looking? They haven't looked for us this whole time. They don't care. Too much time has passed. We're no longer precursors. We're Amazons, Atlanteans, and Asgardians. And that is final. Thor returned here, Mother. He had a great battle, and then he vanished suddenly. Something is coming, and we have a responsibility to uncover these mysteries. She has a point, Hippolyta. One of the Queen's council members interrupted. Diana is familiar with the world of man. She has lived among them for decades. Perhaps it would do our people some good to know the status and whereabouts of the humans and the other tribes. Other members of the Queen's council seem to have agreed unanimously. I am your mother, Diana, and I still want what's best for you. But I am a queen as well. If it is in the best interest of the Amazons to uncover updated information on the Asgardians or the Atlanteans, and the Council feels strongly about this, then you have my blessings. Diana was visibly happy at this. I'm removing your banishment and allowing you access to our sacred library. You can begin your search there. We don't have much on Atlantean or Asgardian history, just mythological books recovered from the humans, but it is a start. Thank you, Mother. And Diana, the Queen said. Diana stopped and looked back at her mother. It is good to see you. It is good to see you too, Mother. And with that, Diana left for the library. Back in Nanda Parbat. Nanda Parbat. Nanda Parbat. You guys know how, whatever. Shield was starting, just Shield was just starting to arrive on scene. Romanoff, Barton, and Nomad stepped out of the helicopter and they began to examine their surroundings. Other Shield personnel could also be seen on site assisting. All that remained of Nanda Parbat was a deadly mess. Whatever happened here was a massacre, Romanov said. Since when are we the cleanup crew? Aren't we usually the ones making the mess? Couldn't they get forensics on this? Responded Barton. Nomad was looking up in the sky and as he spoke, I think that'll be forensics, and he pointed. In the distant sky, an object was approaching at a very fast speed. Almost like a missile, it flew right at them and landed. It was a man. Iron Man. 
Tony Stark had arrived in Nanda Parbat. He spoke. Jarvis, run a scan on the damage here. Looks like burn marks. I want a full render uploaded to the Stark Secure server. The wounds of the deceased seem to be unusual as well. Include them in the scan. I want to take a closer look, see what we can find. Right away, sir. Romanov walked up to Tony. Stark, it's good to see you again. Tony responded, Romanov, or is it Black Widow, Natalie? I'm just so bad with names, especially when you have like 40 of them. She smirked and said, I take it there's no hard feelings. Tony said, hey, I'm not mad. It's not your fault S.H.I.E.L.D. felt the need to babysit me. You and Coulson did a fine job of that, by the way. You know, I could have helped in Harlem. You decided to bring in an alien instead. She looked shocked. Don't think I don't know what Fury has been up to, Romanov. I'm starting to think that's why he doesn't like having me around. Wants me away from his business. Then a new voice joined the conversation. You would have died, Stark. It was Fury. And he continued. The world needs Iron Man more than you may know. You're a smart man, Tony, but did you really think you were the only superhero in the world? Fury chuckled. Don't feel left out. The world's changing, Stark. It's not just about you anymore. And I don't have time to play games. What I do need are answers. Are you going to help me get these answers? Tony just looked at him and continued analyzing the environment. He spoke. Whoever killed these men used weapons I'm not familiar with. According to Jarvis's partial reconstruction, these men were running away. Whatever or whoever did this was extremely hot. Mass temperature spikes over the marks. No one touched them, at least until we find out more about what they are. They're also off-putting trace amounts of a unique radiation I'm not familiar with. I'm going to have to take this back to the lab and see what I can find. Fury looked puzzled. Hmm. So I have one of the best former arms dealers in the world who isn't familiar with the weapon. That's not good. Let me know what you find out. I'll call you if I need you again. Tony was mad now. I'm not your soldier for hire, Fury. Why need me? You already have a soldier, don't you? Why don't you wake him up? Fury wasn't surprised Tony knew of his secrets. It's okay, no hard feelings. I'm here when you need me. Feel free to call me whenever. I love watching the hold line blink. Tony took off and flew into the air. Fury and Nat looked at each other. He doesn't trust you, sir. Fury responded, When the time comes, I have no doubt Stark will pull through. And then Coulson emerged from the helicopters. Sir, it's Miss Prince. She's been out of sight from our drones for several hours now, but we have confirmation she just touched down in Granada. Keep on her, Coulson. She's hiding something. And how do we lose her for hours? Coulson responded, One minute she was standing on a port in Greece, next she was gone. She appeared several hours later in the same spot. I have Fitzsimmons analyzing the footage back at the lab. Fury looked confused. I don't like any of this. I need to report to the World Council. Romanoff, see what more you can find here. Tony returned home to begin analyzing his data. When Jarvis had finished compiling the data from Nanda Parbad, Tony was reviewing it. The wounds of the deceased were highly aggressive burn marks, perfectly cutting through the flesh and cauterizing it at the same time. The flesh around the area of the, root of the wounds were weak and flushed. Tissue samples provided no clarity either. Every aspect of the bodies were foreign and unrecognizable to anything found on Earth. Jarvis, isolate the radiation and bring it up. Tony looked at his data. Amplified and maxed it out in such a way that it's contained in a focused linear form and decreased the size. It is done, sir. Well, there's our weapon. Are we able to recreate this? I'm afraid the technology does not exist, at least on Earth. Tony sat back in his chair. 
Jarvis, we just created a new element only a few weeks ago. You're telling me that there's no work around here? Every possible iteration leads to chaos. Uh, they all end via explosion. Nothing keeps the energy contained. So we're clearly dealing with something alien then. Fantastic. Alright, send the data to Fury's direct line. Yes, sir. Hey, Tony, are you down here? The voice of Pepper Potts could be heard approaching from the staircase. There you are. I just wanted to let you know we received an invitation for a Wayne Enterprises fundraiser for their new Smart City project. Tony looked uninterested. It's next week in Gotham City. Blow it off, you know the drill. Pepper was uh, upset about this. Tony, the invitation is from Bruce Wayne's personal letterhead. He also sent a note praising the Iron Man armor, and he wants to do the first ever Stark Industries Wayne Tech partnership. And what exactly does Bruce Wayne want from, from us, Pepper? He wants to use the arc reactor to power his smart city project. There it is. I'm not all that interested in making the arc reactor tech public, Pepper. You know that. It could be dangerous in the wrong hands. Tony, this could be really good for the company. Bruce Wayne is credible. All of his work in philanthropy has helped people. Pepper, trust me. I know the type. Bruce Wayne, Oliver Queen, Wilson Fisk, all these guys are the same. And I'd sooner let Nick Fury play around with my arc reactor technology before any of them. If someone manages to replicate the technology, we could have a real problem on our hands. Pepper kept pushing. Tony, at least go and hear out what the guy has to say. You made me CEO of Stark Enterprises, and I'm asking you as a friend and a colleague now to at least listen to his proposition. Besides, it would do you some good to get out of Iron Man mode for a while. Tony hesitated. Fine. Wind events are always so boring. Back on Apocalypse, Palpatine, Vader, and Ren awoke. Raish was struggling to breathe, so Vader pulled a hose from his chest and inserted it into Raish's mouth, providing him oxygen. The smell of ash filled the air. The Sith all stood up when a being approached. Well, I certainly hope you did not forget about our little agreement. The being boomed at Kylo Ren. Dark side. The Lazarus Pit did your master wonders, it would seem. Now I will take my weapons. You dare demand from the Sith? Vader exclaimed as he held up his hand, though unable to move Darkseid with the Force. To Darkseid all he felt was only a small tug, and Vader's frustration pleased Darkseid. I show you the way to the pit, and this is how you thank Lord Darkseid? At this Palpatine spoke. Whatever Ren promised you matters little now. He held up both of his hands and fired a full lightning blast at Darkseid, who was able to dodge it. Darkseid then fired his Omega Beams at Palpatine, and Palpatine shot off more lightning. The lightning and the Omega Beam met in the middle, perfectly balanced. Palpatine and Darkseid fought for a while, before realizing that they were equally matched. They stopped fighting, both equally surprised that the other could withstand their strength. Impossible, Darkseid said. Palpatine paused and stopped to think. I know of this place, the system of fire and brimstone. Our worlds have collided before, and you killed most of the Sith scouts that traveled here. Darkseid smiled. Apocalypse does not often get guests, but when it does, they are dealt with swiftly. What concern are weapons of, to a being of your abilities, Palpatine said. I am not interested in explaining my motives. Do not anger me, insect, yelled Darkseid. You are evenly matched. Fighting would be futile. Perhaps we can reach an arrangement. 
Darkseid was not amused. We already had an arrangement, and I am ready to collect. Humor us. I am equally uninterested in spending the rest of my life watching the two of you fight. Whatever you were going to use those weapons for, surely we can stand tall in comparison, Ren said. You suggest we collaborate. If only temporary, Palpatine said. Darkseid thought about this and paced. This is acceptable. You see, I seek an equation. You seek technology of some kind, asked Ren. This is no ordinary equation. This equation allows any who know it to control the minds of any sentient race. The equation teaches one how to break the discs of the mind, releasing a flood of emotion too powerful for lesser beings to overcome. And how exactly do weapons factor into your plan? Why did you need weapons for this? I have seen this equation used only once before, long ago. The planet you have just come from is currently dominated by the humans, but it was not always this way. There was once a precursor race, and they created the humans as a slave labor force. You see, these beings were intelligent and powerful. They sprawled all over the earth with their immense cities and brilliant inventions, all of which were assembled by the humans under the control and influence of this equation. At that time, I was but a boy and lacked the resources necessary to acquire this equation by force. All I could do was sit and watch and observe from Apocalypse, never able to make a move. Where is this equation now, and where is the Precursor race? Would they stand against us? Most of them died out long ago when a great catastrophe struck the Earth. The humans somehow outlived them. What little precursors left separated into tribes, and now they're the Amazonians, the Atlanteans, and the Asgardians. It became difficult to track the movement of the equation after the precursors had separated. I attempted to steal it from Earth and attacked only once shortly after the separation and cataclysm. In search of the equation, I came across a group of precursors who did not wish to claim a tribe. A being who called himself Zeus and his allies. He was formerly of the Sky Tribe and broke off with his band of brothers and sisters. The Precursors are powerful beings and I alone cannot stand against them. However, in partnership we may have more success. And what is it you propose we do to assist? I suggest we mount an attack against Earth, targeting one of the remaining tribes. We'll get little interference from the humans. The tribes have settled far from them. We interrogate the leaders and demand the location of the equation, or we kill everyone that stands in our way. Vader spoke and said, How do we know you will, not, you will not use the equation on us? You did say it was capable of overpowering any sentient race. Having the equation and using it are very different things. It will need to be brought back to Apocalypse to be studied and implemented. In that time, you'll have repaid your debt to me and return, and you'll be returning back to your galaxy, far from the chaos I will be unleashing here. Palpatine had a smile on his face, and, and, as always, and he agreed to help. Ren, summon the first and final orders. Ren approached Darkseid. Which tribe will we be targeting? The As Darkseid responded, The Asgardians are now a powerful group living on an entirely different planet. It is my hope to avoid conflict with them altogether. The Atlanteans live in the depths of Earth's oceans. 
Terrain is not suitable there for an invasion of our caliber. We will attack Themyscira, the hidden island of the Amazons. Well, guys, that's it. That's episode three. Um, I hope you liked it. I'd love to hear from you on how the story's going. Reach out to me on, on social media, Instagram, Twitter, at MGHassey. Uh, follow the show. Take a listen to me, Brandon, and Devin, and Reese now. Talk about all kinds of that nerd stuff you guys all know and love. Um, and until next time.